1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by historian Dr. Tim Retzloff. Originally from Flint, Michigan, Dr. Retzloff graduated from the University of Michigan in 2006 before getting his PhD from Yale University in 2014. He teaches LGBTQ studies and US history at Michigan State University. His engagement with U of M's LGBTQ past began while a student at U of M Flint when a political science professor asked him to write a history appendix of LGBTQ history in Michigan. Retzloff authored the history appendix for the 1991 study, commonly known as the Lavender Report. Using the university's records, as well as bits and pieces from other Michigan newspapers, he wrote the appendix titled Outcast, Miscast, Recast, a Documentary History of Lesbians and Gay Men at the University of Michigan. His research on queer life in Michigan has appeared in many publications and anthologies. Retzloff has been studying LGBTQ history in Detroit for some time as a way to better understand himself and his community. The Tim Retzloff Oral History Interviews, which took place from 1993 to 2012, Consist of over 80 oral histories conducted by Wetzelah with members of Detroit's LGBTQ community to further the knowledge of what LGBTQ life was like between 1945 and 1985. These interviews will be the foundation of his first book. Speaking from the perspective of a LGBTQ professor Retzloff recently participated in a panel at Wayne State University. Our History at Wayne, LGBTQ Life at Wayne State University, provided a platform for several LGBTQ activists and historians to speak to the university's successes and failures in the fight for LGBTQ equality. Dr. Retzloff believes there's a lot of LGBTQ history that's not known because we haven't pursued and asked people their stories. For him, one of the purposes of panels and discussions is to share those stories so that we know them and while we can, we get them firsthand. Tim, welcome to Collections by
2: Michelle Brown.
1: How are well, you? Well, thank today? you.
2: So, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm very glad to be here.
1: So you are a Michigan original, a Flint guy, eh? I
2: I'm I'm a Flint guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hmm I first got hooked on history as a kid. What was your hook? Was it in school? Was it just from hearing stories? What got you interested in history?
2: Well, um. I think one of the things that got me interested in history in general would be um that, that um we had a great aunt, um my my grandmother's direct aunt, so we called her Auntie Prue. And she was born in nineteen hundred. Um and so when wow. I was a little boy and she she died when I was fourteen, so I I was around she was like another grandmother in the family and so <laughs> when I was growing up, she would tell stories about, you know, when there were streetcars downtown and just kind of a, a painting, a picture of a different world. And, and these fascinated me. And, and I, I turned 12 at the time of the Bicentennial. So that fed into, you know, a, a keen interest in history, um, you know, cause there was so much going on about, you know, the founding of, of, you know, the United States, you know, quote, unquote, at the time. Um, So I think those kind of got me interested. And and I, you know, in, in junior high, I did histories of both my elementary school for its 60th anniversary, and for my junior high for its 50th anniversary. So I kind of got my hands dirty early on, in terms of like, doing research. And I had a terrific Elementary school principal who, you know, took me down to the library and showed me about looking up old newspapers on microfilm and using city directories and just ways of of finding history that I I I had no idea about before. You know, he showed me.
1: Being from Flint, how did that? How do you feel that that influences you as a Michigander more so than (laughs) anything else? I mean, I've talked to people who are from like Saginaw who are from western Michigan and, they, and there's something about that area where they're from that has influenced them how has Flint influenced you well
2: I, I, think, uh, I think Flint of course left a deep deep imprint on me um, both in terms of the kind of, of city it was um, and the time that I was growing up in the city my, my direct parents never worked in the shop but my grandparents did. Um, and I had aunts and uncles in, who did. Um, and so it was very much part of, of the culture um, growing up. But I also grew up at a time when General Motors suddenly stopped hiring. You know, a couple of generations that had been, you know, kind of had their lives laid out for them um, in terms of, you know, graduating from high school or maybe not graduating from high school and being able to land a job um, on the line and, and being well-paid and being able to buy a home and, and raise a family, you know, in a, a comfortable middle-class, working-class life. You know, it was, a, it was a tremendous opportunity and promise that that people in Flint had. And I don't think that was ever quite the path for me because I was always interested in reading and mm-hmm. in history and, and that. Um, when I was growing up, Flint had a first rate school system, a first-rate public school system um, that I think, you know, prepared me in ways that, that I think, to, you know, today. school system, public schools in many parts of the state for sure um, are, are now failing people because we've kind of retreated from that commitment. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I had um, my first partner, I, we'd be someplace, and I'd say something, he'd say, oh, your Flint is showing. <laughs>
1: Uh, But you know what, I mean, in some ways that's like a Michigan story because many of us had our parents um, either migrated here, came here for those good jobs, like in the auto industry, and maybe like Mm -hmm. and even our grandparents, you know, they started there. The next generation, you know, it was, you know, what what were you going to do? You're going to go work in a plant. But then at a certain point, the parents, and I would say like, you and I are in the same generation, like it was like, well, here you can go to school. And we saw these options of not having to go into the plant, you know, right, and right. it like opened our horizons to all the things that we could find out and do. She was like, we both have that thing about books and reading and going to the library. Library is a big part of, of my life. As you were coming, oh, and, I, and I. You know, really. I mean, that was my life, you know. And I noticed how you were saying that, you know, how you went to high school, you went to, you started at U of M Flint, but then you dropped out. You, you continued to do research, to study. Many people, you know, like they would have dropped out and gone and got their job in the plant. But the bug was in you, wasn't it?
2: Well, yeah, I think the bug was in me. And then kind of what, what got my path, rolling, and what what got me started, in terms of the the specifically LGBTQ history that I've just become so immersed in, I've been doing it almost thirty years in some fashion, and it's just still it still excites me. It's still like I'm still engaged. I still thrill at hearing new stories and meeting new people who, you know, may have been forgotten or finding new evidence. But but so what what one thing that happened, so I my my first job was a part time job at the Flint Public Library, um, that I started in ninth grade. I worked there ten years um and had various jobs um at the library as a student assistant and then I worked the information desk in front and helped people who came into the library you know, find books and directed them, you know, in different areas. And one of my jobs was working in this area of the reference department, where we had this weekly newspaper from the court system, the Flint and Genesee County Legal News. Mm -hmm. Very kind of, I, I was never interested in it. It was kind of a dry thing, but we had to take ID for it. You know, apparently copies had walked off, and so it was one of these things that, that we needed to take ID for. Well, one thing I noticed at one time handing it out was on the front page of each issue, there was a list of all of the criminal arraignments that were scheduled for that week. So it was like the calendar for the court, and it listed the name and the the docket number, the case number, and and you know the charge. So by that point, you know my my coming out, I had met people in Flint and and I had somehow heard and and found my way slowly into the gay community of Flint and I Mm -hmm. somehow heard that that men had been arrested people had been arrested in the 1950s and so I you know I thought well I wonder if that's true (laughs) using the knowledge that Mr. Caswell had taught me about looking up old newspapers on microfilm I went down and to the basement that's where they kept the materials Um, and looked up on microfilm, on these old crank readers. You know, the technologies have changed so tremendously. Uh uh But I looked up some old issues of the Flint and Genesee County legal news, and sure enough, one of the early issues I looked at, there was a case for gross indecency. And then I just kept looking, and there was another case for gross indecency and another one and another one. And um, so I just started making a list, and it became a project. And some at some point after I finished the list, I went down to the courthouse to see if I would be able to look at the case. They, they still had them. Um, they were up in the attic, and they allowed me to look at five at a time. Hmm. So over the course of a summer, I started, you know, just systematically going through my list and looking at these court cases. So the first one I looked at, you know, had various court documents, but it included a police report with just this very detailed description of this undercover officer basically entrapping this young guy in Flint. And I don't remember exactly which case it was, but it just, that it had such detail that, and, and that it was real, that it was true. And here was evidence that it was true just kind of gripped me. And, um, Mm -hmm. And, and I went through. There were about 100 cases that I was able to find. And at some point, so this is the public office. This is where the, the um, court system and the clerks are working and processing papers. At some point, one of the clerks who had to go up to the attic to get these court cases for me kind of figured out what I was mm-hmm. looking up. And she just started slamming the files on the table for me to look at. So it was, just, it was very clear she disapproved of what I was looking up, which, of course, made me more determined to continue to look mm-hmm. them up.
1: Was your, as you were coming out and you were finding other gay people, but was that history of, of Flint, like, did you know your friends, but you sort of said, like, well, it's just this group. What, was there, or was it something like, you know, like a don't ask, don't tell, we know we're here, but we don't talk about it, and then through this research you were doing, you learned more and that maybe it was a, it was a bigger history than what you even had any clue about?
2: Well, no, I think, I think that was absolutely true in terms of understanding that, that the people that I was encountering were, were a a second or third generation of Mm -hmm. things that had happened before. Um, so somehow, so a couple of things about that one, one of the first, um, I, had a, I was very troubled coming out, um, that was in high school, um, very, I just felt very isolated and it was very hard for me to meet people and I was shy, but, but, um, one of the turning points was that I, I got an apartment, um, when I was 19 and I went to, I had we funded this guy who worked at the bookstall in in downtown, and he was looking for a roommate. And so I went to look at the um, the apartment, and um, there was one a friend of his who was going to be the third roommate. These were gorgeous apartments in downtown, um, built in the teens, beautiful wood, you know, with the kind that of, you know gay men apparently uh-huh, really uh-huh. dictate on. Uh-huh. Um, but but one of one of the the third fellow Tim said well I think you need to know before you say yes is that I'm gay huh. and I said well that's okay because I'm gay and then uh-huh. Rob was like well I'm not gay but I don't care well Rob later came out kind of big time but that was an entry point because you know through Tim and Tim's friends um, who I'm still in touch with um, I started going to bars um, and you could this was before they, um, before you had to be 21 in Flint. So um, the first bar I went to, and, and wasn't kicked out of because I tried a couple times before, was the state bar, mm-hmm. and the longtime owner. I somehow knew that she was the she had owned the bar a long time. Um, at the time, I would have gone. She would have been in her early 70s. Um, she didn't mm-hmm. live much longer past that. But she, you know, as I found out later, she had acquired the bar in 1948. So she operated the state bar in Flint um, for 35 years, 36 years. So I, that was another access point. And then, and then one of, one of my friends through Tim took me to a dignity dance. Um, so dignity is this organization for um, LGBT Catholics. Um, but the mm-hmm. way it operated, in Flint, in the in the mid '80s, the early to mid '80s, was it? Pre- it was pretty much the gay men's like support group, and
3: mm-hmm.
4: there was
2: a similar group for for women in Flint, um, and there was sometimes dances between the two. But through that, I started understanding that there there had at least been people, you know, did, did this dignity chapter gone back to '75, so that kind of opened my eyes too. But but as you said, you know looking at these court cases and then eventually starting to do oral histories with people from Flint. Um, I, I just learned of this far richer invisible world, um, that, that was there. And that, you know, in my daily life, I, you know, once you go to the bar and you start seeing people and meeting people, or you go to uh, meetings and, and you meet people and then you're in the outside world and you see them, it's kind of like you have this special knowledge that the rest of the people around you don't have. And there's something like um, there's something that's really um, emboldening about that. But there's also something that kind of ticks you off because, you know, you have this vision of, of reality that, you know, it would be very hard to try to convince other people of because of the secrecy. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like this self-perpetuating you know, the closet was just, a, and, and still is, you know, a very powerful, you know, institution in a way.
1: Seeing in the newspaper that not only did it go way far back, but here you're still seeing things come up. I mean, like you said, it, it can make you angry that this is going on, but it also, it's like, okay, I think maybe they are, or I might be here, could this happen? Right. You know, young pe young people, you know, don't they say? Well, how come you weren't more out? You know, I mean, I hear. I mean, I, I hear young people now who are going like, you know, if you guys have been more out, and we could have, and it's like, but you don't realize that this stuff went on.
2: Well, uh. no. I mean, I was I was in fear of my job at the public library mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. You know, before I kind of you know now looking back, it's like it's uh, it's stunning to me because. You know the librarian profession is full of gay men and lesbians
3: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. um and there were there was no lesbian administrator, but I didn't kind of understand it at the time, you know, and I was afraid that you know i, I was afraid I had to just you know it was like kind of being on eggshells
3: mm-hmm. and i
2: don't I don't think younger generations that aren't maybe from you know parts of the state like the u p or, you know, Western Michigan, where things still are so dangerous, you know, it's certainly emotionally dangerous, um, sometimes in terms of employment and sometimes physically dangerous. So, yeah, I mean, it's been, and and now, you know, it being, being someone who, you know, is trying to teach this history as well as uncover it and discover it. It is, it is very fascinating how there's this assumption that things, you know, things, you know, they don't understand, you know, why marriage took so long. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't understand what a monumental thing that was. And, and, you know, even now I'm teaching, you know, an online class. I had a student who um, was responding to a 1989 article by Paula Edelbrick, um, prominent lawyer activist um, who was involved in land legal um, early on and had gone to Wayne State, so there's a Michigan connection. She she was advocating against same-sex marriage because marriage as an institution, um, in her mind, was you know not the kind of institution that LGBT people would want to emulate. And, you know, it kind of went against, you know, some of the ideas of gay liberation about being free and having, you know, not being confined by the stricture of, you know, this patriarchal institution. And my student, who was responding to this, you know, couldn't believe that every gay person wouldn't want to have gay marriage. So it was an Mm -hmm. eye-opener that, you know, and, and to me, that's part of my mission. I want them to understand that, the LGBT community is not monolithic
3: mm, in its mm-hmm.
2: population and its thinking and its history. One of the key themes of of your program here, you know, the intersectionalities, you know, it's kind of a I, I hopefully <laughs> help to bring that home.
1: Well do you know, especially like studying history and you and even though there was that cloud of being discovered, when you look at some mm-hmm. of the people Back in history, who did bold, daring things? Who who were artists and, and lived authentically despite mm-hmm. the cloud? And then you look right. like like sort of forward, and you see, like you said, dash to be mainstream. In fact, I've heard people like <laughs> say, "Now, do we do we still need to do this? Have we lost something?" I mean, because sometimes I look at it and, and I wonder if. You know like when you look at like how Ruth Ellis and her partner were, I mean you know they had this great mm-hmm. relationship, and now you see you know we're having our big gay weddings, but we're right. having our big gay divorces, and you know there's not that um that they're staying with it. I was talking to I don't know if you know Dr. Debrail Watson who did a mm-hmm. film because she had been talking to some young women at l g b t Detroit and their women to women, <laughs> and they were talking about you know what these lesbians, and if we had all come out in marriage equality. And then she went back and she said, well, she had friends who had been together like 30, 40 years.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, despite this cloud and what it took for them to be together. And so she did a, a film on them. But when, you know, it was like, did we lose something? You know, as you look at like where we were in the past, even though we had that cloud where we, bolder or more creative or inventive or resourceful than we are now that we have, we're here
2: and we're yeah, queer, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, you know, I just, I don't, I don't want to say there's one specific answer and, and make a sweeping generalization. I think there are ways mm-hmm. in which some people were bolder or were, you know, tremendously daring for their time. hmm um, and certainly, the you know, at the forefront are, are the people who did drag performance um, in, in Detroit and throughout Michigan. Because they were kind of on the front line of, you know, this wall where most of the gay community kept its guard up. So they were kind of, you know, in, in certain places like you know, the gold dollar in the sixties and seventies, but even further back, you know, there were, um, there were clubs in the African-American community that had black drag in the early 1950s. And, and there's, um, there's just tremendous documentation. Um, you know, there, somebody wrote a pro a feature article about, um, some of these performers, In the Michigan Chronicle um, in Mm -hmm. the early 1950s, when the Michigan Chronicle would still publish these articles, and one of them said, It's the life we love and we live it, say the city's female impersonators, was the headline Mm
3: -hmm. of this article. Mm
2: -hmm. So they were like being unapologetic in 1952 when nationally. We've got the federal government having its crackdown, the lavender scare where, you know, the mere suspicion of being homosexual could lose you your job. You know, we've got purges of, of gays in the military. We've got, um, we've got men being arrested, um, for accosting, you know, people in a bar who, you know, any kind of bar at the time when you Some people who are single go out to bars to try to meet people, maybe Mm -hmm. for a pickup, maybe to meet someone for a relationship. Well, heterosexual people don't have to worry about being arrested for (laughs) inviting someone home. Um, and, And women who might have been dressing a little too male, you know, while they didn't receive as harsh punishments as they did in terms of the police they were still subject to like being ticketed and having to pay a fine and, and we on their guard. So, you know, there's kind of this surveillance going on. So the, the people who were daring um, really in some ways were daring, Um, but there were also, you know, and, and, and I, it, it was interesting how you asked the question because I mean, it, it, I don't want to over romanticize mm-hmm the sense of community that people had. But there was, you know, in some ways, you know, if you walked into a bar, there was <clears throat> there was a protectiveness. I think there's something that's that's not there in the same way now in terms of, you know, if you are if if we recognize you as part of the community, we've got your back. Mm-hmm. And that is that that's kind of the flip side of the closet is this this Ethos of protectiveness, but there were a lot of people who were too chicken to ever go to a bar, and makes it. I don't want to be disparaging. I would let let's say they were too fearful for for mm-hmm. any number of of real valid reasons for losing their job or or being kicked out of their home. Um, some people led double lot li- double lives that they thought were necessary for. Um, success in life and or you know they, they nonetheless enjoyed having a family, and the way that you could have a family was to be in a heterosexual marriage, the socially mm-hmm. approved way. Um, and they didn't want to jeopardize that. So I mean there were lots of motivations going on that looking back, it was, it was a different world. Some of, some remnants of those worlds continue on which is another interesting piece of it. But mm-hmm. I think part of the challenge with younger people is in a way they don't know the LGBT world of today beyond their kind of little lens. Cause I certainly didn't at 19, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> um, but then, you know, to kind of then open them up to, you know, well, this didn't just pop up overnight in the fact that we have, So many organizations support, I mean, it's just, um, when, you know, 50 years ago, there was one organization in Detroit, 1968, Mm -hmm. there was one organization in Detroit. I, you know, it it would be tricky to count them now because, you know, they're popping up all the
1: time. Yeah, all the time, you know, for every, for every group. (laughs) Well, Tim, I want to take our first break, and then when we get okay. back, we're going. To, I want to talk about your work and, and coming to Detroit. So we'll be right okay. back.
0: This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
1: You're just joining us. I'm talking with Dr. Tim Retzlaw. And, you know, Tim, one of the things that I found that was interesting, because I know that, you know, your huge body of work covers Detroit from 1945 to 85. And earlier you were talking about how in the Chronicle, um, how they would have things. And, you know, I often tell people, like, as a kid, I knew that there were gay people. I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. I can think the first gay lesbian I met was at my grandmother's, you know, table. You know, she and <laughs> I, I knew them, but it was like we sort of like stuck together because we were I mean, they were black, they were part of the community, they did something, you know, and they were just there. And I think that later on, the extent of, of how people live this double life, I mean, it was just like, I was like, wow, I didn't realize this was going on. But often it was like, I met people who were in education, who had gotten into education, and first of all, they knew that the spotlight was on them because they were African American, but mm-hmm. so they really kept the gay part in, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they, that was just like another reason to get fired. As you started to look at, this period of time and doing these interviews from 1945 to 85 the gay population. That was, I think that you would most see many people for some reason think still think even though they knew it, that when they think gay, they think it's white men. When you started to do these interviews, was that like the low hanging fruit? And then you had to dig deeper to find (laughs) African-Americans, Latinos and others.
2: It is it is much much easier to find gay men. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, who were involved either in organizations or bar life. So it 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 you know there's a few things. So finding finding those stories, finding evidence of that experience um, was absolutely um, trickier and has been Mm -hmm. trickier and continues to be trickier for me, you know, as a, as a white gay man. um, And I understand that. And I think, I think that is, you know, an important thing to, for me to keep in mind. One of the things that I feel is important, you know, with, with finding people to interview and interviewing people is to kind of show my commitment to, Helping people tell their stories, and 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 not appropriating their stories, mm-hmm. and that's a very important thing to kind of straddle. When you and were one asked, one of the things. That, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: When you were asked to do the lavender report, did you feel this? You know, like you know, no, it it can't just be about this one group that you wanted it to be inclusive. Were you? Did you have to champion that 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 inclusion and diversity in that lavender report?
2: well so um, so the lavender report was was very early in my research. Um, I don't think i officially dropped out of college yet. <laughs> it was actually the first paid piece of history that I ever did um, and what what it ended up being given the constraints of what I had both in terms of finding evidence and in terms of the time constraint I had to produce it um, was almost exclusively reliant on the Michigan Daily. There were some other like published materials that I used so whatever saw the light of day in the Daily was primarily the source for the the report I did for the Lavender Report, um, the study I did, the the history of 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 at that point gay and lesbian in the early 90s you know the the lens hadn't extended to bisexuals and and certainly hadn't yet to transgender people so i think i think that initial report absolutely was was um limited by that lens which was the the, the lens of of my body of sources
3: mm-hmm.
2: um So last fall, um, I was invited to give a lecture at U of M for the university's bicentennial. Um, And, and, you know, I I feel it's important and I'm I'm thrilled that as these major institutions are celebrating major anniversaries, that they want to include, you know, the LGBTQ aspect of their history. Um, I think we're at a point where, you know, people who aren't LGBTQ understand the importance of, you know, understanding a more complex history. How I framed my talk last fall and what I did is I revisited what I did, you know, 26 years ago, 27 years ago. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And and updated it and and was able to look at, you know, one, all of the body of work that has been done nationally. Cause in 1991, um, you know, there were maybe you know, boots of leather, slippers of gold, hadn't been published yet, you know, on lesbians in mm-hmm. Buffalo. We had coming mm-hmm. out under fire. We had John Demilio. We had John, Jonathan Katz, you know, we had very limited, you know, national stories, let alone, you know, Ann Arbor or U of M stories in this context. Um, and since then, you know, there's been so much that has been done, and there's been so many new avenues. And Jim Toy has given his papers to the Bentley Historical Library, so mm. we have archival materials that we can draw on. In the meantime, gone and looked at court cases in, for Washtenaw County. And there were, there were a couple major crackdowns on homosexual activity on campus in the late 50s and early 60s that that received national attention. You know, the Chicago Tribune, you know, has a blaring headline about, you know, 34 homosexuals arrested at U of M. I mean, it was just, they're mm-hmm. making a big public statement, whereas, you know, before individuals had might, maybe been arrested, um, they didn't make a big spectacle of it. So there, there was a political, ideological intent to, light. Like, making a big, you know, panic about it. Um, so I was, I, I knew the people's names and I kind of went back and, and investigated what I could about, you know, who these people who were arrested and, and in that instance, I was able to bring in some African Americans and, and I had interviewed a couple of um, friends of Edward Weber, the longtime curator of, the Labity Collection. Who was a a white gay man, born in 1922, considered himself a Bohemian, and and was mixed in with the African American gay community of Ann Arbor as well. So it was kind of this this important bridge, and and sometimes I you know particularly when I'm dealing with Detroit and in Flint, um, you know there's often this emphasis on segregation and ways in which, um, even the queer community was segregated. And I certainly don't want to downplay that. And I think it's a really crucial part that we need to understand, um, about Detroit and and some of the things that made daylight possible was because of racism. But, um, but there were also important bridges. And in some ways there were parts of the gay community that, that were more apt and interested in building bridges and, and, you know, breaking through some of that segregation. So, and I, I think that was what was one of the things that was interesting about revisiting it is I was able to include lesbians much more than I was in the original um, report. And also, you know, talk about people of color and the emergence of, you know, even by, you know, in terms of updating in the 25 years of activism that's happened since, you know, a vibrant, vital LGBT community of color has emerged on on the U of M campus or campuses, mm. I should say, because it's Flint and Dearborn as well as Ann Arbor. Yeah. So, um,
1: so you know, you did that and you've updated it. So let's talk about your interviews. Did you start with, you know, like? Friends and family, and then and then say you know each one bring one, and that helped you build it up. And how did you go about determining de- what you were going to talk about? Were these what what were you looking for in these oral histories?
2: So um, there's kind of not a one size fits all answer mm-hmm. to that. Um, the first the first interviews I ever did were. Um, were Flint related, so i had gone through and done, looked at the court cases, and then I I understood, you know, at that time, that this was, um, kind of one perspective, and it was kind of the police perspective. It was the perspective mm. of people who who wanted to lock us up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I knew then that I needed to do interviews, and and it was it was a slow process of kind of getting up. The courage to approach people and, and and interview people, but once I started doing some you know it, it, you just you learn how to do it, you learn, you get a little better you you kind of develop approaches. One of my earliest interviews was with um, two men who lived in Flint, um Hal Lawson and David Brewer. but in the course of the interview, I learned that they had, were from Detroit and that they had helped found the first organization in Detroit for homosexuals mm-hmm. in 1958 called the Madison so it was a chapter of the Madison society some of the initial interviews i did on flint and then later you know i did some ann arbor interviews and then um some detroit ones was this word of mouth and kind of you know researchers often call this the snowball effect um, so I would do that. I would do that. Um, but there were also, you know, there's also kind of this dynamic interaction with, with documents I was finding, um, and finding people who were listed in the the first newspaper that was published in Detroit was called the gay liberator. So I would see names in the gay liberator and try to track people down and find people that way. Um, people in interviews would talk about people, um, I coverage of the first um, pride march in Detroit in celebration in seventy two lifted several names. so so once I had those, I started having people to like try to find. You know now looking back, mean, you know, for for my dissertation, I for grad, before grad school, I had about forty interviews I'd done already that I brought to grad school. during grad school, I did another sixty eight interviews. so I did a hundred and eight interviews. For my dissertation, um, some of these. So during the time I was a college dropout, I would find people, um, and oftentimes, you know, they'd moved away. I would use my, you know, tax refund <laughs> to fly to San Francisco. You know, of the great excuse to be in mm-hmm. San Francisco? But I would interview a couple people or three or four. You know, or I'd fly to New York and interview some. And some of them. Sometimes it was tricky because, you know, even even if they had their name published in the gay liberator or in the Detroit paper. Um, it might be used a pseudonym. So then over time it was like, you know, so for instance, so the, the, the one organization that existed, um, in Detroit 50 years ago was a group called one in Detroit. It was kind of a, a affiliated with one magazine, which had been a pioneering um, publication of the homophile movement in the 1950s and, um, a former Detroiter named Dorleg had helped found it. Um, a woman, um, named Irma Wolf was, um, one of its early editors. So there's Detroit connections with kind of the national movement, you know, of people who moved away for a better life. Um, so there was a chapter of this one founded here called one in Detroit. And, and I you know, the newsletters existed, some other kinds of documents existed um, that weren't still in private hands, and there were two names. I kept running across Chuck Thompson and Chet Sampson, and I never knew which one was the pseudonym. And at, at some point, finally, and this would have been probably around 2003 or something, I came across something that was published that kind of said you know chet Sampson, who went by the pseudonym chuck thompson so i knew the real name and by this point you know there started being some ways of finding people on the internet and i found that there was a chet Sampson living in los angeles so i wrote a letter and one of the things i i learned to kind of do and it was a, a strategy that proved effective several times is I wrote a letter and I just said, are you the Chet Sampson who was involved in one in Detroit in the 1960s? If so, I would love to talk with you and maybe interview you. You Anyone who wasn't involved wouldn't know what one in Detroit was. So it was kind of a coded way of approaching them. They knew that I knew, but if, if I somehow had the wrong person, they wouldn't have any clue what I was talking about. They'll just say, no, I never heard of that, and... So, um, but it turned out it was the right person. Um, and so, you know, tax refund comes, (laughs) I took a trip out to Los Angeles and I'm able to interview, um, Chet Sampson in his, I think he was 83 at the time. And, you know, his memory wasn't great in terms of some of the details, but just to kind of get some firmly established, okay, this is the real person. And he also had saved records and let me have records that he had saved. It was an important way to kind of get at uh, the story. Um, the other kind of key person is there was a woman who spoke at this Christopher Street Liberation Celebration in Detroit, named um, uh, all of the all of the things published said Susan Williamson, and she wrote for there was um, a feminist magazine close at Wayne State and I wanna say it was called Moving On, but I might be you know, I'd have to look it up to to be firm. But I kept coming up with references to her name Susan Williamson, Susan Williamson. And I could not find William, Susan Williamson. One, it's a common name, but two I just, you know, mm-hmm. kept run coming up against a wall. And then I interviewed someone else who was involved in planning the parade, um, Marilee Melvin. And um and Marilee, I asked Mary about, about Susan Williamson. she says, "Oh, that's Susan Swope." Oh. And so I was able to find Susan Swope, mm-hmm. um, who you know, now lives in Pennsylvania, um, near Gettysburg. And not only I mean, it was a wonderful interview. Um, you know she was, she was involved in different ways. She came into gay liberation. And then um, kind of was involved in, in activism through both the feminist movement and um, one of the strands of, of you know, socialist groups in Detroit. Um, but it was interesting. She used the pseudonym not because she didn't want to be out, but she was married. Hmm. And she was in the process of coming out, and she didn't want to embarrass her in-laws,
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's just fascinating, <laughs> you know, these little stories that, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to chase down. You know, as, as someone mm-hmm. who wrote for Between the Lines, you know, your best stories are the ones you you have to put some shoe leather mm-hmm. to get.
1: <laughs> now, you know, I talked to someone else who was um, doing this type of research, and she had gone, found someone who was in another mm-hmm. state, um, and they'd gone down there. And these stories often are really hard. And your family and friends might not know what you went through, and after she interviewed this this woman, who said, "You know well, her immediate some of her family knew you know she wasn't really in the closet, but you know she just didn't broadcast and after she said it was a great interview, told a lot of mm-hmm. really detailed history, and a week later, the woman called and she said. I would prefer that you don't publish this or say anything about this until after I'm gone, because everybody well, who mm-hmm. was engaged didn't know. Did you ever have right. someone like call you and say, "You know, hold that or i don't I know I told you, but I just don't want it out there now
2: <laughs> i i I absolutely did, and it was it was just i was blindsided by it. But it was also, you know, I mean, the, the only ethical thing is to adhere to their wishes. One of the things that, you know, and when I started, stab, started doing interviews, um, you know, I, I came up with and I worked with a professor at Uvon Flint, uh, Nora Fares, um, who guided me and and, you know, gave people the option of using a pseudonym or not then over time at some point i i realized well i could also allow them to you know have it opened up after a certain period of time so i changed it to do that so that you know they can say you know please do not use my name for x number of years
3: Hmm. and of
2: course this is an important way to like get at stories that might be lost because you know sometimes You know, it's, it's just, I mean, people live painful lives, other ways, other, other historians have done similar things with, with topics that weren't gay related, you know, in terms of like documenting the red scare and looking at the witch hunts against, you know, communists or suspected communists. Um, Many people didn't want to have their names used even 50 years later but also many people were like, well, now it's fine. Now let's, let's lift the veil, pull back the curtain. You know, I, I had, I've had many people say, what are they going to do to me now? You know, I'm retired. Mm-hmm. I, you know. Um, but there's still, there's still individuals who are like, you know, the closet has had such an impact on them and they've lived lives of, of secrecy. It says you, you have to respect that. Um, the the names I have mentioned um, here have all been names that either people said, you know, please absolutely use my name, or in the case of Chet Sampson, when we did the interview in 2004, he wanted me to not use his name for 10 years. Hmm. But now I've been doing research long enough, and some of these dates have, be, have have come and come to pass, so I can use real names. It's a situation where because um, I've been curating this website using obituaries to remember people, and they're deceased, and I you know as as often as we can, I think it's important to use real names, mm-hmm. because these are real people, and they did live real lives. and in the case of Chet Sampson, now I'm free to talk about how he was elected to the Gross Point School Board. Um, and was a beloved teacher and used to take students on summer trips out to Hollywood and through the Rockies in, you know, in a station wagon caravan, you know, that he was a real person that was beloved in that community and trying to think, you know, in terms of, well, how much do people really know or not know about him? You know, he was certainly not married. He was, you know, the confirmed bachelor. And, and in some ways, it's helping me kind of think. It's like like you, you mentioned, your grandmother and kind of the first lesbian that you kind of encountered. And it may, you know, I'm, I'm what I, of course I want to ask all kinds of questions about. it. But I'm wondering, if there's this uh, a situation where it was known but it was not spoken? I think mm-hmm. there were, I think there was more acceptance, but as long as you didn't put the label on it. Or in the case of you know, this is something that's still true with small towns, you know. Well, we don't like those people, but Annie is one of us, or Jimmy is one of us. He's, he's mm-hmm. we know him, and he's okay. And mm-hmm. and I think I think that's another piece of this that's going on. And I hope you haven't stressed too far <laughs>
1: No, as you get into, like you said, you often talked to, uh, to people about it, and there's always like little terms or things that that do I know. I had been in South Carolina, and this guy, mm-hmm. you know, he was telling me about it, he said, and he was rec- re- recommending these books, and he was pointing out these things where he talked about, you know, he had codes for things. And, you know, and I remember reading in one of the books that he did that they talked about one person who, like you said, was a gentleman who never married. And then later on they talked about his cousin who was like him, who, and they used the term, slept on the other side of the bed, which I thought was really <laughs> weird. Okay, so which side of the bed is our side of the bed, you know? But, but you know, wow. it's like, it's like, these, like these euphemisms that, you know, that people use to, to do it. I know that I had a, a cousin who, you know, no one ever said anything, but I always knew something was was up, and... I suspected, especially as I became aware of of my own identity, that he was gay. But, you know, no one ever said anything. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. it was like to me, he was shouting it. And later on in life, after, uh, because he lived in L.A., LA, I talked to um, Dr. Sylvia Rue, and I said, by the way, Mm -hmm. this was my cousin. And, you know, I think he, I'm pretty sure he was gay. She said, oh, girl, everybody out here knew it, (laughs) you know. But the family, like you said, had all the words and things that they used that was like a code that identified that he was different, but no one ever came out and said, oh, he's gay. As you started Oops. to ex- expand beyond, you know, you said you start with some of the people who were in Flint. You went through these records. As you started to expand beyond, how did you, did you encounter codes? And how did you break that code or break into other communities, I mean, you were from Flint when you came down to Detroit. I'm sure there was some crossover, but I'm sure that there were some people who were from Detroit, and there was this, a separate Detroit culture, both black and white. How did you
2: mm-hmm.
1: break that code to get those stories?
2: Well, I, I feel like I'm still working on breaking <laughs> some code.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one of it was, part of it was, okay, at this point in time, I understand that these are this is this is the the public face of the community. And this is where again research beyond doing oral histories kind of helps. So, you know, I, I know which organizations existed. So I could approach people to ask them about the Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit. Or I can ask them about, you know, the Day Liberation Front of Detroit. Or the Daughters of Bolivis chapter or, you know, the the group Sappho Sisters Rising. So these and or or the Geneva House commune. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of these these kind of institutions that I want to learn about and then individuals become the entree point. So I'm meeting people and then they might say, Oh well, you know, so and so was also involved in you know, Geneva House and I I was i was incredibly privileged to be invited to attend a Geneva house reunion in 2011, um, where I met, you know, a a wonderful collection of of women who, you know, either had lived in the house or were part of kind of this lesbian feminist um, social circle um, connected to the house. So it has kind of its own kind of institution. That you know, out of curiosity, have you had you heard of Geneva House? <laughs> so, so it was around um, from like roughly seventy-two to seventy-nine mm-hmm. um, at I want to say ninety-seven Geneva Street in Highland Park. You know, just just uh, south of Six Mile, um, and usually had you know six to eight women living there. And initially, it started out as, you know, this commune for, for feminist street theater, so there were some heterosexual women there, but it kind of quickly morphed into this lesbian commune. And, you know, Lee lived there um, that I mentioned, and uh-huh. Lee and then the the collective that were involved in her shelf bookstore that was opened up in the late seventies. So a lesbian feminist bookstore that existed. So they were involved. Um, There were various lesbian rap groups. They'd had a speaker's bureau, the lesbian radio collective that was involved in daily speaking, um, and, and Sapo sisters rising. Um, so there's, you know, it was kind of this nexus of, of kind of this, This young, street smart in some ways, um, more radical, you know, lesbian activism within the city, Um, Uh which contrasted to another group that I never heard of until I, you know, I found this ad in Metro Gay News, which was the newspaper that followed the Gay Liberator. Um, and one of my interests in, in researching Detroit was kind of researching Metro Detroit in trying to understand Detroit and its suburbs and was there gay life in the suburbs. Well, of course, but, you know, and how was that different? And so I ran across this ad called Suburb For Suburban Women Together and hmm. somehow found, you know, the woman who founded it and interviewed her. Her name is Janice Craigie. Um, and the, the group now is called women together, but it's still, um, 42 years later meeting a week, but now once a month, but you know, here's this again, maybe much less visible to the wider community, but you know, that has been, you know, if you, if you, if someone were to ask you, so what are the oldest LGBT organizations in Metro Detroit? I don't know how many people would say women together was one of one of them.
3: Wow. Whereas,
2: you know, I would say, well MCC is there. Uh-huh. You know, in some ways if if you trace Equality Michigan back to um to Triangle and then uh-huh. the Michigan Organization for Human Rights, then that would be another one. Um in some ways the Wayne State student group, you know, could be dated back to seventy one. Finding history and then learning history and conveying history um is is important in in part because you know people moved away i mean you asked me about the interviews about a third of my interviews of of about detroit metro detroit were people who no longer live in detroit so Mm -hmm. two-thirds were people who were still in metro detroit so the and and those interviews were different the people that i interviewed and continued to interview Um, about Detroit That don't live in Detroit anymore. They might have left in the 60s or 70s and I just did my first few interviews um, In three or four years over my spring break um, Down in Florida. There were some people that I wanted to interview for my dissertation and I wasn't able to and so I finally for my book I wanted to do that Um, and when I when I interviewed them one there's kind of like, this is a a part of their life that's in the past. They've left Detroit. So there's a fixedness to them, And there's also kind of this freedom where they feel like they would, they would share maybe more than someone who's still in Detroit and might not want to tell stories out of line. Hmm. And I think the other thing that's going on with people who are still in Detroit is I feel I need to build longer relationships it's not like i'm meeting them and then you know and then flying home <laughs> you know I, uh-huh. there's kind of this building of trust that's going on but i also have to be conscious and aware because they'll tell stories and these stories might blur
3: uh-huh.
2: over time because they've been here all these years and they don't maybe remember so much that you know will bar they're telling me the story about maybe this bar or this organization um, and thinking that it's, you know, this time when I know that the bar didn't open until year X or Y, or I know that organization didn't exist and, you know, it it folded before, you know, the time they're talking. So there's kind of that dynamic that as a historian I have to be um, aware of and also very patient because, you know, People don't remember dates. I don't. I certainly no. don't remember dates mm-hmm. very well. <laughs> um, but that's that's why you hope people, you know, save.
1: Now, one of the things is like, and we know, and many people in the bisexual community will say. I mean, now you see, you know, one or two people are more people are starting to come out as bi, but the bisexual community often is invisible. Were you able to find references to people or people who were? Who in that time period, who were out there talking about being bi?
2: Um, in terms of them talking about, you know, so people that I interviewed, um, I think there were one or two. Um, but so, and this is where it becomes tricky, and this is where other kinds of evidence provide an avenue for understanding a different time. So so like I did with, with Flint, because I knew that you know, that there were a rich body of evidence, um, I knew when I wanted to look at court cases for Detroit. So, and and what I what I did is I was able to, um, during, during a research year of grad school, I spent nine months um, in Detroit um, during the week um, and home on weekends uh, going through court records at the Murphy Hall of Justice. So the old Detroit Recorder's Court. And I went from the the records there started in forty seven, and they go to the mid mid sixties. <clears throat> the trick was, and I knew there'd be stuff. The trick was that they're not indexed except by name, so and they're microfilmed. So I had to go through every court case to find the ones uh. that I needed to find. So I went through a hundred thousand court cases. Wow. To find about eleven twelve hundred that were relevant. And ultimately of the twelve hundred, maybe close to a thousand were people who actually lived in Metro Detroit. But they were invaluable. They're just there's there's information and in a lens on the certainly the gay male world of forty five to sixty five that you could get at no other way. But I think hmm. gay male world but the trick is that it, I do, it's hard to even put some labels on how on these people, how they saw themselves, you know, in terms of their behavior, in terms of, you know, what I know about their lives, any of them were bisexual in terms of not just once, but multiple times engaging in homosexual activity. But then also being married, um, and 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 it, it's certainly complicated to try to grasp because you know there's this one case where this guy, and I want to say he lived in Dearborn, but I you know I've, I've, I've written about it so I, I can kind of talk about it without you know, maybe getting all the details right. Um, but he was arrested multiple times, and his wife stayed with him. She died. And and you know so there's kind of like okay you can interpret that as well you know I mean he's he's arrested he she's gotta kind of know why he's arrested when he's arrested so many times <laughs> um, so she's either tolerant or you know it's a reflection of her status as a woman in 1950s America <clears throat> where she's dependent on him and kind of has to tolerate what he does and what he chooses to do. And, and, and we know from other accounts that, that, you know, may not be from Detroit or may be from Detroit. Some people experience a lot of pain in these kind of marriages and other people were just kind of, well, you know, he does what I, he does. I do what I do. So, mm-hmm. so in terms of, but, but even, even in that instance, I don't know would this guy have? called himself bisexual or even homosexual. I don't know, but he was, he was repeatedly going to places that are certainly identified as gay or homosexual or queer. Mm. And, and in terms of kind of, even what, what we now call kind of transgender and trying to understand those experiences, um, this, this court evidence is, is fascinating and compelling and revealing, but often raises more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. But it does show that there's kind of people living in ways that aren't part of our usual narrative of the 19th. Um So <laughs> the the and, and, and the example I want to share about that is are in kind of the so there were a number of of African-American men who were arrested in female attire for accosting. I didn't find any instances of white men arrested in female attire for accosting. Now, I, I, and I you know, as a historian, I don't want to say that that never happened, but in terms of the criminal record and kind of the harshest surveillance and penalties people might encounter, it's, it's, people who were African-American who were bearing the brunt of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was more common in that community. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe it was a form of prostitution, though there wasn't always money exchanged. You know, biological men were, you know, on the streets of Paradise Valley. You know, the whole strata right next to Woodward, you know, and going east, you know, north of Grasshead. They're close to home, mm-hmm. and, and, they're, and, and some people are being arrested on the stoop of their apartment building in, in female attire and saying, yoo-hoo, to people driving by, you know, trying to get a trick or whatever term, mm-hmm. um, and it's, you know, and I don't, you know, you just want to know, you want them to have be able to speak. And tell their story, but it's not there it's just this like they were, the the closest you know there's there's one guy who like fought back and really like and then was beaten up, but it was like mm-hmm. so that got a little more more um, information in the court case and then another one doing the side project of of Michigan LGBTQ remember and remembering people. Um, through their obituaries. I found an obituary in the Bayer Reporter from the 80s, and and I did a little additional digging, and it turned out that he was one of the men arrested in Detroit. But by the time he died, he was identifying as a female Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and living a life as a female. So Mm -hmm. however he viewed himself or herself in the 1950s, you know, over three decades, he had this journey that, you know, by the end of her life was going by a name, the name Marion And, and it, it's so, you know, I, I, it, it's tantalizing, but it is, you know, kind of to answer your question, um, maybe bisexual identities are hard to find,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but certainly the phenomena of bisexuality, and, and transgressing gender was was absolutely going on. And then the mm-hmm. challenge is, okay, what what did it mean for these people, and how did they how did they navigate their world, and what was what was their family's response? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, Tim, we're going to take our second break here, and we'll be right back. back with our conversation with Tim Retzloff. He's a historian. He's done a lot of work on the LGBTQ history in Detroit, particularly between 1945 and 1985. Um, you know, as I think about it, I know that people who were in that period who were alive and living their life then, right now it's really important to capture um their stories because although as my mother would always say tomorrow's promise to no one, you know, the reality is Mm -hmm. if you look at the expiration date, they're getting closer to it. You know, they might outlive Mm -hmm. you and I, but we don't know. So it's really important to doing that. And I was thinking about what we had been talking about before the break, looking at that time period. If you talked, if one of those people had been alive now wouldn't their narrative be different? I mean, you know, because like then, like you said, there's an African-American man, like you said, who dressed, they were dressed as a woman, women, they might have been, like you said, turning tricks and stuff. But here we have uh, a vibrant trans community, many of whom are sex workers who are real Mm -hmm. clear on who they are. So, you know, do you sometimes, do you have to stop yourself from looking at today's lens, when you go back and hear people who were alive in this time period as they tell their stories where, you know, like you said, we'd look at one of these guys and say, well, he was trans. But back right. then, that wasn't his narrative.
2: No, absolutely. I think that is the crucial part of trying to understand the past. And, and you know, one of the things over time is you do this, and I would encourage anyone who does you know, an oral history. Um, you know, one of the early questions, you know, I, I ask biographical questions and stuff, but one of the early questions is when did you come to see yourself or understand yourself as different? Mm. Because I, I don't want to put a label. I want them to offer what their label, what they remember their label was or what, you know, what that sense of difference was. Cause I don't, I don't know. I don't want to presume in once in that kind of situation you say, Oh, well, when did you think, when did you realize you were gay? And, and, you know, they might climb up and may have had more of a bisexual life, but say, Oh, well, he wants to know about my gay side. And then I, you know, so, so there's kind of this, this care and this finessing that, that you, you can only learn over time. And sometimes when I listen to some of my old interviews, I'm embarrassed or I'm screaming into the the players, you know, ask this, why don't you ask this? Why didn't you ask this? But, um, but that's just part of the process. And, and in terms of, you know, the ticking clock, I'm just, I'm, I'm aware of that. I have a, a list in the back of my head of all kinds of people that, um, I either was, was on the road to interviewing or wanted to interview. They were on my radar or I was, you know, at some point too afraid to approach them Mm -hmm. and didn't pursue it hard enough. Um, It's just kind of the reality. But I, I, you know, the bottom line is, you know, if if people know that there are people to be interviewed, grab grab, grab a report quarter or now people use their phones and have them tell their story. Mm-hmm. You know, get it captured because, um, as you said, you don't know what's going to happen and i'm 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 certainly aware of and and i i I feel a connection to everyone that i've interviewed I feel you know whenever i've done this you know experience, I feel enriched after each one i haven't had an experience where I didn't feel like, wow, you know a, so grateful that this person shared their story in their life mm-hmm. and there's just different it's it's you learn something different from each person um and you might be scared and you might be nervous about doing it you might think you're flubbing and you, maybe you do flub but you know don't <laughs> let that stop you <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure you, you, you probably you know as as you've been doing this program you're kind of learning ways of of you know Coaching people that that maybe you didn't know on day one,
1: mm-hmm. and you know, and I, you know, I have found too that there's some people. It's like uh, I'll start talking to them, and then later on you go back and re revisit them. And when I, one of the people who I think of is Andrea Jenkins, who also did a transgender oral history project for the Treder Collection, and you mm-hmm. know, and and it was like when I first met her, it was as as through her poetry, and then to go back and talk to her through her transition as a trans activist. And now, here she is. She's got a political career. And I see, mm, I'm going to have to go back and talk to her at some point in time. <laughs> I mean, have you been? Have, have there been people who you have gone back to or who have contacted you and say, you know what, I thought of something else I want to tell you? And how do you incorporate, how are you going to incorporate that moving forward and where is this body of work going to be maintained where people can go and, and listen to hear, and do some of the research where they don't have to go through, you know, courtroom files. They can hear these stories right, right. that you collected.
2: Well, so, you know, that's, that's kind of given me the opportunity to talk about um, someone who, who's become very special to me um, over the years, so I mentioned um, the Detroit Madison chapter that mm-hmm. Hal and David started, and and I interviewed them in '91. And then their friend Jerry, who went by Lady J, and they called him Lady J, um, was visiting from Florida. And they said, "Oh, you have to come talk to Lady J." So I interviewed Lady J, and did an interview in, in early '90, maybe mid '93 and then Jay was back visiting Detroit um a little later so we did a follow up interview and he also introduced me to Chichi who had been a performer at, in Detroit from the late 40s through the 1970s and he ran a, a used bookstore on Wayne's campus and he was he was you know in terms of daring people for his time he was a very caring person um mm-hmm in the course of doing my finishing my bachelor's, I did an honors thesis and I visited him again and did a follow up interview down in Florida. And then I think I visited him again. Um, so I, I did, I think I did three or four interviews over the course of time. One of the things that and that's an advantage is over the course of time I had new things to ask about or I knew to ask about things but he was both involved in in organizations but he was uh oh, he was a barfly through much of the 50s but you know in 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 bar life you know you have your certain circle or your clique and so you know about that so i understand that it's kind of capturing only a certain clique but just his memories and his you know his enthusiasm about what life was like um were just compelling and he just I, I saw him down in Florida. Um, so I finished my PhD in 2014, and I had done work at the Labadie Collection, and I'd worked at U of M, and I was you know, close friends with Julie Harada, who succeeded Edward Weber as the curator of the Labadie Collection. And we arranged to bring Jerry up for a public conversation at the library at U of M. Um, which is recorded and available online, but it was kind of a way of here's this at that point, he year old um, kind of to be recognized you know' cause he's the last surviving mm-hmm. member of the first organization in Michigan. Um, and he just and, and he's just uh, terrific in terms of the stories he remembers and has shared. Um, he's a lifelong member of the ACLU. He's um, he's involved in um, humanistic Judaism with Sherwin Wine um, at at the temple in Birmingham. So he's just got kind of a very interesting. And he knew he lived in a gay apartment building on Wayne's campus in the late 50s, um, and and just, so he just had these little pictures of of a past world that. That you know, it still astonishes me that you know there'd be a gay apartment building on Wayne's campus in the fifties. But then again, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. so I saw him. You know, when I was, he'd been nudging me to come down to Florida for many years, and finances and time didn't allow it until this year. But he's like, "Well, you have to come visit." So I went and spent the night. He threw a party on my behalf. Oh, Um, and we just had a lovely sharing experience with, you know, this circle of friends. Um, And it was fascinating that he lives in this retirement community in in Florida that is big enough to have its own newspaper, but also big enough to have its own like gay elders group of residents and a number of former Detroiters have, you know, resettled to Florida. So I've met some new people, one of whom, you know, worked at Hudson's in the 60s. Um, and I've been wanting to find people who worked at Hudson's
3: because mm-hmm.
2: I knew there was a retail connection um, for years. And sure enough, he was like, oh, yeah, I worked at Hudson." I said, well, were there very many gay people? He's like, where are there very many gay people? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> at least where <laughs> he worked, it was like all gay. So you know, and we don't think of a workplace as kind of you know maybe the theater, or you know if if you're semi closeted maybe you know higher ed or or physical ed in the public schools you know there's lots of gym teachers that are like Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but so there are these, niche, these niches, but it's you know until you get someone who's open to sharing about it, you just kind of you don't know the details. You don't know the richness. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and Jay turned, Jerry turned 90, um, this year. So I'm just, in he's, he's just, uh, I'm very blessed to have known him, you know, for 25 years now. So in terms of kind of knowing people over time and, and yeah, each time has been different and it's interesting to, to have, to listen to his stories over time too. See, you
1: you, you got you got through the PhD, okay. You, you've been doing your interviews. You've got the book now. Well, the is book next? is
2: in in it's the in, book is in progress. So the the, okay. the dissertation clocked in at four eighty, mm-hmm. or six hundred eighty pages. So my task now is to make it readable. And you know, I, I you write your dissertation for four people, your committee. Mm-hmm. And now I'm writing it for a wider audience um so mm-hmm. i'm I'm doing some additional interviews for pieces that I feel I didn't get enough of or didn't get right or did, you know there's parts of it that i I feel are gaps so I want to get it as full and right as I can, occupying my time in addition mm-hmm. to you know trying to do some public events and, and mm-hmm. kind of encourage people. And, and these have also been beneficial in terms of finding new people. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a process that necessarily ends. Um, and then the website that I started and just kind of, you know, maintaining that and helping to remember people in that way.
1: One of the things that I think also that that it's doing it, because I just tell people, like, if you've been away from just from Detroit, I mean, and some Mm -hmm. people who live here, you say Hudson's, they don't know what you're talking about, you know? (laughs) know, Hudson's, what's that? You know, and so not only is that that rich history of what Detroit Detroit is, and I mean, and and you heard people like when they announced about uh, Ford taking over the train station. Mm-hmm. But there's more to that. People who came here, people who live in a, you talked about Paradise Valley, which people, mm-hmm. many people don't, and young people don't know what it is.
2: Um, well, they've only driven I, over it. Exactly.
1: a <laughs> tragedy, so, I mean, yeah. And so to to rise, to come back from where it was, you have to know your past. You have to know your history. You have to see what has what has been there. All of these things made Detroit what it was and what it will be.
2: interesting that we've now come around to a time where the city officials kind of understand that LGBTQ people and the community um, are part of the city and a vital part of the city and a contributing part of the city in in many ways, um, and that they're willing to acknowledge that. And, mm-hmm. and and I don't want to say that that's a brand new thing, because Marianne Mahaffey kind of exactly. had that appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Detroit, you know, is often overlooked for its pioneering role in passing protections in its human rights ordinance. You know, mm-hmm. it was the first of the 25 largest cities in the country to enact such protections, um and a lot of people don't know that you know in mm-hmm. in some ways, Detroit was on the vanguard of a movement um was eclipsed because of some of the economic devastation that that um bef- has befallen befell the city um mm-hmm. trying to come back from that i i early on and we didn't get to it, so i'll get i wanna go you know, ahead just kind of pose it to you mm-hmm. um so there were bars. In along Jefferson, for instance, and there were factory bars or ethnic bars that you know, as the auto industry was in its decline in the late '60s and early '70s, and these bars were clo- were in danger of closing because the plants closed. You know, Dodge Main closes, and mm-hmm. all these bars that it supported, you know, working class bars, um, were kind of threatened with going out of business. So a number of them became gay bars, but they became gay bars because they didn't want to become African-American bars. And that was to those straight white owners, the preference, they would prefer to turn gay than to turn black. So there was kind of this, you know, ugly racial dynamic that was going on that helped give rise to certainly white gay bar culture um, or, and not rise, but helped, helped fuel it, It's, it's growth in ways that, that hadn't been seen before. Um, and it was economic and it's, you know, legacy that, you know, that, that goes beyond bars that, you know, demanded multiple pieces of ID, which was also, you know, a horrible part of, of the experience of, of many African-American LGBT people in Detroit. Um, but then there was Todd's, so, you know, so mm-hmm. people could go to Todd's, and Todd's kind of showed that, you know, there were places that people could come together uh, along, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of, you know, just kind of style.
1: How important do you feel that, Knowing the history, looking at the present and looking towards the future, is it, especially as you see now, I mean, many people, when they talk about gentrification, I mean, they think they put a gay face on a white gay face. There were places that, you know, we sometimes, yes, there was racism, but sometimes there are ways that we dealt with it and came together as a community. How important is it? that people know that, yes, it has happened, but we have found ways to come together as a community and overcome it. And also important to see that when you say gay, gay is white, it's black, it's Latino, it's Asian, and we have a history all together here in Detroit.
2: Well, you know, Michelle, I'm a historian, so, of course, I think it's, It's Mm -hmm. hugely important to kind of know all of those things. And and I I think it's important to know that, you know, it's important to to be honest about, you know, the racism and sexism and transphobia and sometimes even homophobia Mm
4: -hmm.
2: that's existed within the gay community. But it's also important to know that you know, the glass house was where black and white men together met. Mm-hmm. You know, and that there were bridges, and that that the Boston Edison neighborhood was a place where you know, kind of gay men who liked historic preservation and middle class black families kind of co- coexisted, and it coexisted, you know, since the 1960s. Um, and and you know the. That there are people who didn't flee to the suburbs, white people who didn't flee, and mm-hmm. there are people who did. And kind of understanding the dynamics and motivations for both um, and kind of just kind of realizing ways in which there are structural barriers, but also there are means of resisting those structural barriers and kind of some, you know, some right. resilience. That that people in the community and in conversations and dialogues and relationships and friendships that are just you know they're hard to kind of I mean you can't get at all of them you can't you know maybe you can only get at a small fraction but but they're incredibly inspiring um, particularly at times when you know it, it feels like our community is, is is under attack, but once again under attack, or under attack mm-hmm. in new ways. Remember and understand previous attacks. Mm-hmm. There's still people around who are it, remember Anita Bryant and remember how our community and brought people together who hadn't been brought together. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we still see. I think we see people in leadership that can be models again.
1: Well, Tim, I'm going to tell you, I could talk to you forever. Um, I, 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 you know, really, I really could. I hope that I would like to have you back later on and we can figure out what's the next phase that we can, because I, I I, really believe we learn from the past. You know, we learn our mistakes. We learn our strengths. We we see all that we can be. And I would love to have you on again so we can continue this conversation and
2: well, thank I you, Michelle. You- I would love to be back then again. I, I, I think we've begun a shared exploration that, that I look forward to.
1: Okay. Well, definitely. I want to thank you for your time today. Look- I want to thank today's guest, LGBTQ historian, Dr. Tim Retzloff. Dr. Retzloff and I will be continuing this conversation during LGBTQ History Month This October. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections
4: by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.